And, and uh, my wife and I, that's usually something we like to do. We like to kick back. And, uh, you know, nowadays we have stuff like Netflix or I'm sure you guys have other devices that you use to watch your movies. Or now, Nowadays we don't just uh, watch a TV show, we binge watch it. Uh, and there's two types of people who uh, watch TV or movies or two personalities that we uh, tend to have. There's the one who likes to watch uh, the movie, but they don't just watch it. They're analyzing it. They're hanging on to every detail. Uh, maybe there's the subtitles in the beginning of the movie, and you know, if, if it's me, I've got to pause it and read all of it so that I don't miss any of it before the movie starts. And then there's uh, the other person who, well, let's just get to the good stuff. Like, I could care less about the details. I just want to see the action. Or maybe it's a reality TV show, and I just want to get to the main event, like a cooking show, and you just want to see the main dish. You could care less to see them put together the finishing touches. And that's how I think uh, Christmas is a lot of times for us. And, and, and we're not just solely one of those personalities. Some seasons we might be the other personality where uh, we don't stick to the details. We're just not focused in on, uh, you know, maybe you're getting older or I, I kind of load the day that we get a house and I might have to start doing the Christmas lights. Uh, and so when I'm talking about details, I'm also talking about those details that you don't want to get focused on those or uh, you might just want to get to the good stuff, the food or hanging out with family. And as we look at prophecy this morning and looking at some of the Old Testament stories that lead to the birth of Jesus, that's where we get to with the details that sometimes it's hard to take a pause and, and, and look at some of the details because the people in Jesus' day and even before him thousands of years ago, they struggled and wrestled, some of them, with the idea that when's this Jesus going to show up? They had all the stories and all the prophecies, but they wrestled with, okay, there's no date. Someone didn't write a book like we might have seen. Uh, I remember seeing on Amazon a book. It's one of those end-time books where the guy had a specific date that Jesus was coming, and uh, obviously it came and went, and we're still here. And I think the book's still about a penny on Amazon. Uh, so they didn't, have a, a, they didn't have a due date. They didn't have a date that said, all right, this is when Christ is going to come. And so it's all a mystery, so why focus on the details? Let's just wait for the good stuff. And Jesus has been mentioned all throughout the Old Testament in the sense that God's people, they always knew there would be a long-awaited Savior. Where we typically start is right in the beginning, because we know right from the beginning that he would have to be born into this world in order to redeem his people. We see in Genesis chapter 3 that God punished Adam and Eve when they sinned. And in so doing, he said to Eve, he said, you'll, you'll be at war with Satan. You'll be at war and you will be fighting him through your lineage of women. And one day, through your lineage, I will raise up a baby and he will crush Satan we see that in Genesis 3:15 and 16 and and so this is the first prophecy but it's also kind of considered a 
prophetic gospel because it has that gospel story that Christ is going to come. And he's not just going to come, but he's going to do something that none of us can do. And so that's our first answer this morning for why this Jesus in a manger. And though it was a punishment or a curse, it was also the way he showed us how that Jesus was going to come. He was going to come through birth. Uh, Many of the women in this room can already tell that because when you've had a child, it has been painful. And we see that in verse 16, that not only is mankind going to come into the world through uh, pregnancy, but it's going to hurt. And even Jesus would come to redeem the sin, but it would have to be through uh, painful childbirth. So Christ would be born and one day suffer the bruising that Satan would inflict on him, but it was Jesus who will destroy Satan with a fatal blow. And that's what we get to celebrate at Christmas. We get to participate with Christ in the gospel story. We get to crush Satan. And there's also the participation in the fact that none of us in this room is able to be in this room without being born of a woman. We too are offspring of women, just like God said, I will raise someone up and he will come from the line of Eve. And so even though medicine's great these days, you can get an epidural or you can, uh, sometimes uh, my sister-in-law, she's had C-sections in the past, so instead of uh, trying for a natural birth, she'd just schedule a date and just go in and have the baby, but make no mistake, we know it's still a painful process and it's still discomforting, and then put in the fact that there's nine months of carrying that child. I can remember when we were pregnant with Brooklyn and I would just read some of the the books each week. It would give you, you know, this is where your baby's at, the baby's this size, or it would also tell you the things that are going through, uh, you know, mommy's mind, and and, uh, also the pain or the discomfort, things like, I can remember the first couple of months it would say that her heart rate's elevated, and there's more blood pumping, and that made sense because she'd be more tired. And from having a child, I would think of baby Jesus at Christmas. I'd try to start to imagine what that was like. And when I thought of the nine months that we were uh, waiting for Brooklyn to be born, I can't help but wonder if that's one of the details uh, that we often overlook. I know I did until I had a child that nine months our Savior was in the womb. Uh, If you're in the Hebrew study, we've been seeing a lot of allusions that Christ became like man, and he didn't just become like him, but he fully took on the same aspects, and that would be to be born as a baby and spend nine months in the womb. And it's hard for us to imagine that because, again, it's a, it's a mystery as we look at the details. This same Jesus who was with God in eternity past from the beginning who had a hand in making all of us and making creation, he would have to spend nine months in the womb. He had to go through infancy, and, and that also takes uh, on the, the little imagery that we might have that, okay, so he was also a baby who needed to be fed. He needed to be wrapped up and kept warm. 
they didn't have disposable diapers, but he obviously had to be cleaned up. It reminds me of a verse that we looked at last week with Isaiah 64, 6. Uh, J.D. read, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We often think of Jesus, we think of, uh, I, I grew up watching Charlie Brown, and I think his name was Linus, and he's holding his blanket, and he's telling the Christmas story, and it sounds all cute and cuddly, uh, and so you get this idea, and, and obviously Luke says that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes, but in those days, if they were poor, they would just, uh, it was typical that they would wrap them up in strips of linen or cloth. And they did it for the same purpose that we do today, to keep the baby wrapped up nice and tight, keep them warm. Uh, you know, I think in their day, it was also to keep them clean. Uh, don't let them scratch themselves with their fingernails. And it also reminds me that uh, when you look back in the Old Testament, when the child was a firstborn son, we would typically offer a lamb because the son is holy unto the Lord. And so Joseph and Mary did exactly that, but they couldn't afford a lamb. And if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could also just offer a pigeon or turtle dove. And so we think of uh, Joseph and Mary as they head their way to Bethlehem for the census that Anything that they've had with them, it's probably gotten dirty. Uh, they, didn't, they probably didn't have a lot of money to buy some extra blankets. Not to mention that we know that Jesus was born in a stable. And so I just start to imagine, you know, what kind of blanket did they grab? And we know that pregnancy is messy, so they're wrapping him up in this filth. Or maybe they clean him off a little bit, but it's not as clean as we have it today. And yet, this Jesus who's wrapped in a filthy rag or a polluted garment that we see in Isaiah 64, 6, there's no unrighteousness in him. There's no, uh, there's no uncleanliness within the being of Jesus. And every righteous deed that he's done with the Father before he came to this earth and every righteous deed that he's going to do as a man on this earth there's nothing sinful or unrighteous about it. And he had to be born. This was God's plan. This, this answers the why and the how. That Jesus would have to be born. And the second uh, reference that we find is Deuteronomy 18. Moses's telling us that someone greater than me is going to come, a greater prophet, a greater priest is going to come into this world. And it's interesting to think of Moses because even he was a baby who was born into a filthy world. He was born into a chaotic world. Without his mother's help, he was almost about to die because we know that story that he He's placed in a basket and he's put down the river and he's saved and adopted by Pharaoh's wife. And then he clearly gets away and comes back to redeem his people. And so when we think of prophecy and we look at even the story of Moses who says someone greater than me is going to come, we can believe him because 
If you look all the way back into the story of Genesis, there's a lot of I will statements from God. And he even tells Abraham, I will put your people into slavery for 400 years. But he also says, I will bring them out. And he writes the story so specifically that it's Moses who he's going to raise up to bring his people out. And if this man, just a mere man who though he's done all these great things, if he says someone greater than me is coming, then we can and should believe him. And it sounds a lot like John the Baptist, who was born around the same time as Jesus, who said the same exact thing, someone better than me is coming. Someone who I'm not even worthy to touch his feet is coming. And all I'm doing is preparing the way so that you can repent and receive the redemption that he will bring through the work of salvation. So people always knew that this Jesus was coming and would be born in a manger. They also knew why, and we've already addressed this with Genesis 3, because sin entered the world, and we needed a Savior who would do what none of us can do. And the only reason that, or the only way that we could have salvation is through God sending him and slaying him on the cross so that you might have eternal life. We also read in passages like Isaiah 53 that uh, many of us are familiar with where we see a lot of past tense referring to Jesus and what he's going to do on this earth. Before he even arrives on the scene, Isaiah 53 says that he has been crushed for our iniquities. We read also in Isaiah 53 that it was God's will to crush him, and it was God's will that prospered in Jesus' hands. What's interesting, though, is, not, is that not only are prophecies like this in the past tense describing what's about to happen, again, they give no actual date. They don't have a due date like most of the mothers in this room have been given that says this is when Jesus is going to come. But if you look at Isaiah 53.1, he says, uh, or it implies that only a few would recognize Christ when he appears. And so it reminded me, uh, I'm sure a few people will uh, relate to me if you like any old movies like John Wayne, uh, The Longest Day, and it shows the story of the D-Day invasion. Uh, there's an aspect to that movie where before the, the American troops could land on the beaches or the paratroopers would come in, the underground French resistance, they would uh, listen to their radios at night and they would just listen to, I, I think it was to stories and poetry. And there was a specific line that would be read that only uh, applied to that specific group. And when they heard it, they knew not only was the invasion coming, but they knew exactly what their role was to play. And so when they hear whatever random line was said, they just pick up their stuff and get going, and they might destroy a railway that was going to bring extra troops, or they might cut the wires so that the Germans couldn't uh, communicate with each other. And they all knew their role. And that's just, the, that's just what we see with the story of Jesus' birth, that everyone from Mary and Joseph, or the shepherds, the wise men, everyone played their part, and they also had the angels assist them in the communication process. 
But for the rest of the story, for the rest of the people in the past, or even for us on the other side of it, even though we have all, the, all these truths and all these prophecies, there's, there's still that skepticism for some who say, well, how can we really know? Especially when we look at Isaiah, that was about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Not to mention Genesis and Deuteronomy were thousands and thousands of years ago. But make no mistake, God was not going to deny his promise. Even when we look at the end of the Old Testament, we usually call it the 400 years of silence where between Malachi and Matthew, there's, there's no prophecy. There's no more Old Testament canon that's been written. But Jesus, or God was not silent in those years. He still played a vital role. Uh, if, you, if you're a history buff, you might look at the story of Alexander the Great, and we know that he did all, all the things that he did, and he, and he moved his empires, and that spread the Greek culture, and it just paved the way for the rest of what we see in the New Testament. And so as people awaited the first Christmas season, they were able to do so because they heard hundreds and hundreds, and also thousands of years ago, that this Jesus would eventually come and redeem his people. Jesus had many followers before he even was born, before he arrived on the scene, and centuries after he was dead and gone, he has many more followers. Today we have Facebook and Twitter, and I'm not even sure of the other ones are on Instagram, stuff like that, that I don't even jump on, but... Uh, the servers would not be able to manage the amount of traffic that would be on Jesus' profile page from all the followers that he has to this day. But how did his followers in the, pra- uh, in the past, the present, and the future know, or how could they guarantee that he was the one to follow? Because all throughout the Old Testament, we see these passages that we've looked at. We hear the accounts of all the people who have seen him, and uh, we also have other prophecies like Zephaniah 3.15 where it says that God is in your midst. And so before Jesus was even on the scene, the Israelites knew that God is with us. And that verse even allows us to consider the same truth for us, that even for us today, God is in our midst. And when his son came to earth as a baby, it also proves that He is even more so in our midst. And we know that when he left, he also said, I will leave my Holy Spirit with you. And so even in that 400 years of silence, or even after he has left, and we have the Holy Spirit, and there's that gap of time, God is still active and sovereignly in his creation's midst. And when his son came on this earth, he was in our midst. And if we take refuge in Jesus and what he did on the cross, he is still in our midst. It's interesting to follow the presidential debates and follow the many candidates that many of us are probably still trying to pick and choose which one we want to pay attention to. Um, in years past, I haven't really taken a lot of interest in the presidential debates, uh, usually because I just I was young and I didn't care, 
where I thought, well, enough of you guys will vote and I don't have to worry about it. Uh, but now, you know, you get older and you start to focus on, okay, what's this person saying? Is he going to do what he said he's going to do? Uh, but more, more importantly, we probably ask even deeper questions. Okay, does, is he going to care about me? Is he going to care about Joe Geringer? Or is he going to care about each person sitting in their chair this morning specifically? Or is he just going to make his way to the White House and think up all the stuff that he said he'd promise he would do? Or maybe something comes up and he's focused on that important issue or his own agendas? And after all, he's all the way in Washington, so why would he, is he really going to focus on what I need here in Crawfordsville, Indiana? But that's what's so great about following Christ. He might not be right, uh, he might not physically be here in the room, but he's not like a presidential candidate who uh, might be so far away. He is in our midst. And we serve and follow a Savior who, along with his Father and the Holy Spirit, cares deeply about us. He focuses on every aspect of who you are, what you do on a daily basis, and how those things are going to affect you. And we see this in the whole theme of Scripture. And we see it a lot in the Old Testament. We see it a lot in these prophecies that we've been looking at. We see a God who writes the story of our lives. He's written the story of the people's lives in the past, leading all the way up until his son he puts on this earth. Another prophecy that I began to look at from Isaiah 53 was Zechariah 12, 10, and 11. And it has a lot of that. uh, There's just that one verse, verse 10, that has a lot of the same imagery that we See in Isaiah 53 where he says, uh, I will pour out on the house of David and in the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and they shall weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. And so the prophet is speaking of what is to come when Jesus, the firstborn of Mary, will die. And people will mourn or they will cry for him more than they did on the day that King Josiah died. That's what Hadad Rahman and Megiddo are. They're not a person, they're a place. That's the location where King Josiah died, and there was a lot of mourning for him. King Josiah was eight years old when he became king, because if you've read any stories in Kings or Chronicles, we typically see that tradition of, well, this guy screwed up, this guy screwed up, and, and then his father went in some evil ways, and then they died. But here's King Josiah, age eight, and uh, I'm sure, especially with the young people in the room, I don't think any of us could imagine being a king of a nation even at age 16 or 14, but here's a a kid who at age eight is made king. And then as he got older, he reaches age 26 
when he decided to start repairing and cleaning out the temple, he, he got the women together and said, hey, uh, let's put together a work day. You guys do some of the cooking and cleaning. Hey, guys, let's, uh, let's uh, you know, chip off some of that paint and repaint. And then somebody decides, hey, you know, down this hallway, uh, there's a few rooms back here. We should maybe clean those out. And, you know, there's old music stands or old decorations back there. And so King Josiah's servants are back there. They're cleaning out these rooms, and lo and behold, they find uh, the book of the law. They find Genesis through Deuteronomy just sitting there. And they bring it to him, and they say, hey, we've, we found this book of the law. And he said, all right, well, let's, let's uh, have it read. And so they read it in one sitting. And at that reading, he was forever changed by what he realized that none of us were doing. He was forever changed by things probably, you know, you look through Deuteronomy especially, there's a lot of good stuff in there where, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul. Uh, Especially when he probably thinks of his parents, he thinks, okay, well, they didn't impress on me this word that uh, I'm reading for the first time. And he's forever changed by it. And that's why it's so important for us even today to reflect on the Old Testament, the prophecies, all those difficult texts where maybe we don't usually want to hit the pause button or maybe we don't want to rewind a little bit. Let's just get to the important stuff. Let's get to the good stuff of the cross. But if we go back a little bit into stories like King Josiah, we, uh, we see a clear path to the story of God that he's written on the lives of people like him. And more specifically, uh, there's also some more prophecy within the story of King Josiah. Being young, he realizes, all right, I need to learn a little bit more about this book we found, and we just read it, and uh, I don't know how long that took him. It would probably take me a while to read five books in one sitting, and so he sends his servants, he says, hey, go find that prophetess, Huldah, I think she can help us, and so they go and they they tell her, hey, they found the book of the law, and they read it, and the king just needs a a little bit more direction, and it was really rare in those days for there to be a, a woman who was a prophet, and obviously she didn't write any Old Testament canon, but God clearly uh, gave her the gift of prophecy, and she was able to discern, uh, you know, Scripture, the law, and also discern God's will over people's lives. And so she tells, uh, she not only tells them what the book of the law, uh, what all those things meant, but she also had a clear direction for Josiah. She said things like, you know, you're going to, Uh, you're going to one day die and your people will go through judgment but God is going to let you die in peace and you won't see that destruction. And so he realizes I'm okay, all right. Uh, I'm not going to be punished. I'm not going to be like my father and, and be punished for the evil we were doing, and they were still doing some evil things. They were still worshiping other gods and, and a whole array of other things. And so we look at that and we, we think, okay, well, okay, he's good. He doesn't have to do anything, right? He can just sit back, relax. He already knows his story. 
He, uh, he didn't have to show up for the Christmas Eve service. He didn't have to help his wife put up any lights uh, with the nice weather we're having. Maybe he can just go out and golf while we all come in here or uh, show up for the Christmas Eve service. But that's not what he does because, remember, he is forever changed by the reading but also even more so changed by this prophecy that he's been given And he decides to leave a legacy. He decides we're going to do things that we haven't done. We're going to clean out all these idols. We're going to keep repairing the temple. And we're going to celebrate the Passover like no one's done before. And they're going to just have a huge celebration. And he knew that he had work to do until that long-awaited time, or really short-awaited time for him uh, to die, because he didn't even make it to his 40th birthday. And that's where we see the line from verse 12, that people will mourn for Christ, who came to this earth and headed all the way to the cross, and God's wrath was poured out on him, and people will mourn for this Jesus more than for King Josiah because at Megiddo he gets struck by an arrow and the people bring him back to Jerusalem and he dies peacefully just like Huldah had said. But when we look further into the story of Josiah, uh, one thing I never realized was that the reason it says that in verse 12 is because even 200 years later people were still mourning for Josiah, and so it sounds a lot like Moses, that if we can believe the story of Moses, if we can believe him when he says, someone greater than me is going to come, we can also believe that if people mourn for this, just a mere king, Josiah, then this king, Jesus, who's going to come and do what none of us could do to redeem us from our sin, it's going to be, uh, the mourning is going to be greater for Jesus than it is for Josiah. And it is going to be this King Jesus who comes in the form of a baby. And so then we will hopefully celebrate Christmas differently. We'll hopefully celebrate Christmas uh, just like people celebrated the Passover more than they did before with King Josiah. And that's what Christmas time is like for some of us also when we look at the story of King Josiah. That Remember, he didn't sit back and relax. He decided, I'm going to leave a legacy. When we pause and reflect or we read the prophecies of this baby Jesus lying in a manger, this Jesus, and we remember why he came, not just how he came, we will celebrate this season with a lot more joy. A couple weeks ago, I was sharing that with the, the middle schoolers that, you know, when usually someone like me, I usually talk a lot about joy, but as I was sharing that with the junior high students, I realized uh, I talk a lot about joy, but do I show it? Do people, when I'm hanging out with them, do they, they see that joy that I have in Christ, especially on a Sunday morning when we come to church, uh, we should be the happiest people on earth because we get to come here and praise God and and remember what he did for us on the cross Uh, 
And especially here at Christmas, we get to reflect and be reminded of how he came. And one other thing that I share with the junior hires is that so often I know the reason that I struggle with showing that joy is because even though common sense, I know that he is risen and he left the Holy Spirit, I still tend to act like he simply teleported down, came to this earth, died on a cross, and he's gone. But we know that that's not the case. We know that he is always in our midst. And we know that he came through the Virgin Mary. In 2 Kings 23-25, it says about King Josiah that there was no king after him that was like him. In the sense that they didn't follow the law or they, they didn't make the choices that he made. They didn't leave a legacy such as King Josiah left. But if you, uh, what's interesting is if you look at the genealogy of Christ in Matthew 1, you can look all the way back and King Josiah is in that lineage. And so they got it right that there was no king that came after him that was a mere man, but we know that there was a king the only true king that could come from heaven to earth and leave a longer lasting legacy than King Josiah. And that's why the mourning will be greater for Christ in the day that he's pierced because it only lasted 200 years that people mourned for King Josiah. And we don't know why Josiah was compelled to go out to battle because, again, remember he said, or uh, Hulda told him, you know, you're going to die in peace. And so the reason he went out to battle was to leave that legacy to uh, the, the Pharaoh of that day was trying to get some allies together. And in Josiah's mind, he was thinking of the future of his kingdom. Even though he knew that there was going to be judgment anyways, he decides to go out to battle And it's all about the fact that he wants to leave a legacy. And he also wants to make a stand for God because even even his enemy was in the same mindset as his people where they struggled with the gods or, or other array of sins. King Josiah knew the outcome that was prophesied about him, but he still went out to fight Pharaoh to prevent any further turmoil or war that would face Israel in the future. And so all these stories from Genesis 3, Deuteronomy 18, all these people who paved the way to show us that Christ is going to come, it all points directly to why and how prophecy in general, but mainly when it concerns uh, this Christmas season, the coming of Jesus and his death is going to be true and we can reflect upon it. And so this Christmas, you know, don't be afraid to hit the pause button and reflect. Or maybe you still have a lot of questions about the gospel, about Christ. Don't, uh, for those of us who have been walking with God and humbly walking with him, Uh, like King Josiah, let's leave a legacy this Christmas. Let's focus on the greater things, but also 
add in some of the details. Maybe you're going to be sitting at Christmas with some family, and, and maybe it's not the typical place that you can maybe even say a prayer. And so don't be afraid to, hey, can I, can I say a prayer before we have this Christmas dinner? Or don't be afraid to get into the conversations with those at work or just in the neighborhood about who this King Jesus really is and why we celebrate Christmas. And that's the place that we need to leave the legacy is in the relationships that we have in our families, our friends. Um, I've seen so many people posting all the comments about the the certain cups that don't have Merry Christmas on it. And I've seen plenty of people that I agree with that that's not where we need to die on that hill uh, concerning cups at a company. And we need to just have those conversations and make a stand just in the relationships we're having and not be afraid to leave a legacy and get into the details of why this King Jesus came in a manger. And also when it comes to to spending time with our own children or our grandchildren, may we look back at even the stories that King Josiah had read in that Pentateuch that we impress these things on our children's children. Or maybe you don't even have any uh, children in your family, but you're able to spend time with other children, uh, maybe with a friend, or, or maybe you just have nieces or nephews. May we learn to leave a legacy and impress the true meaning of Christmas on everyone. Let's pray this morning.